to episode 49 of Room of Requirement, a podcast dedicated to recent and resilience in the time of Trump. I am one of the co-hosts, Kamala Shrout, and with me... Uh, Miracle Jones and... Alexis Wright. Yeah. And today we have a special guest, someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. I'm Richard Dunks. Nice to be here. Ah, thank you for coming. Yeah, Hello, absolutely. Richard. And you uh, used to be a New Yorker, and yes. now you're lately of... A Las Vegan... Again, yes, <laughs> and that's, that's back home for you. Yes, that is back home for me. So, yep, the, the the great return back to family and those responsibilities. So you went back home and you're uh, sort of dealing with family responsibilities, but you think you're probably not going to be in Las Vegas for a while. Yeah, so there's um, other responsibilities pulling me to another um, metropolitan center in this great country of ours. Um, but I'm still un- rooted here in New York City, so mm-hmm. a lot of my work is here. So I kind of like come barnstorm for the week completely exploit what's available here and then make hay while the sun shines and then travel back to my and, to a life elsewhere and, and manage to still pay las vegas rent and pay las not, vegas not rent. new york rent yeah <laughs> it's a good gig yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. I, I can make you cry with the amenities and the low price that i have when like vegas. self-driving cars exist you'll be able to just like get in the back of one like curl up fall asleep and just like show up here in the morning yeah and then just like ride back in the same way. Exactly. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I enjoy your life already. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm part of the, the vanguard of the super commuters, right? Yeah, the people that travel like yeah. long distances. So, Is that a technical term? Yeah, super, super commuters. That's yep. amazing. So yeah. I think it's um, it's people that, like myself, that like live in dramatically different areas, but yeah. then commute in for work. So mm-hmm. people that maybe live in Vermont or you know other cities outside of New York where they'll commute into New York or Boston or D.C. or something like that on a regular basis. So come in on a Tuesday, leave on a Thursday, something like that, and mm-hmm. kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an original quote, but you once referred to New York, living in New York City as kind of being in a relationship with an abusive boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now that you've left him... Uh, I like to be more gender-balanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abusive spouse, because yeah, I think... Yeah, you, right. Yes, there is that quality, I think, of like... You still miss, you still miss it. Uh, well, we're in this phase now of indifference to where New York is just like, you left me, I don't care. Uh, you, you can come have whatever, but you, we're, we're not talking. So we're keeping it. Go get your stuff. Yeah, yeah. go get your stuff. So, so, <laughs> but there was that time where it's like it was really like that first thing I'm going to leave. Like, no, no, stay. Come, no, I love you. I love you. I really do. And then as soon as I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll stay. Then the beating started again. And then I was like, okay, then now I'm gone. So, and then now we're just in that place where we just have our own boundaries, keep it professional, tell it goes. When New York starts passively, aggressively liking some of your Facebook posts. <laughs> And like just commenting on old posts that you know no one else can see. What are you gonna do? Oh no! So that's already started happening. Yeah. <laughs> so that is like clients. But oh hey yeah, I came across your blog post or whatever. That's really kind of cool. Yeah, we should really get in touch. You might like to know what you're doing. All that kind of stuff. No, it's just the, the spirit of New York City in that passive aggressive way comes through many different people involved in my life. So yeah, yeah. Maybe we get together and just catch up. Think about old times. <laughs> time. yeah. How long were you in the city when you lived here? Uh, a little over five years. Okay. And what, what brought you to New York? What was the attraction? Um, so, <laughs> it's interesting you put it that way. So there were two. There was the girlfriend, obviously. So, like, I was living in Maryland and coming up um, to visit. And it's like, this gets really boring after a while. Or really challenging. I don't want to do this. Um, and then the school. So I came up for grad school. But the plan was I'm going to do two years grad school. And then I'm splitting out of here. We're taking off and going someplace else. And then, and then no. An additional three years later. Yeah, an additional three years later. Well, the relationship broke up. Mm-hmm. And then like, there's a lot of opportunities here. And it's, I think it's also reality to kind of put into a larger context, right? Opportunity exists in the cities. Mm-hmm. And the larger cities are more opportunity. And so mm-hmm. New York City has yeah. lots of opportunity. And so... I had been intentional with a network, I had built it up, and then that was like the fertile soil then to kind of plant my opportunities for um, 
the work that I did, mm -hmm. the company I wanted to build, and everything, and, and the friends that I had, the community that I had. Yeah, so once really you're already blossomed. here and the sticker shock is over, yeah. and you see all of the, the opportunities and you're talking to people who you yeah. do business opportunities with, personal but, relationships. But there's that slow drain, right? <laughs> so it's like that, I mean, it's it takes so much energy to live in New York City. Mm -hmm. It's it's the mental effort of getting up and going and fighting the subways and the trains and mm -hmm. the streets and everything else. Kind of just grinning. Love <laughs> the combat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yeah, but combat exacts a toll after a while. Cowboys and Miracle Jans are both very pro-crowd. We're both pro-crowd and pro-conflict. You recognize after a while that um, you it's just not necessary to fight that battle. And mm -hmm. I, that's where the thing about aging kind of comes in. It's like, is it do I not want to do it because I'm old or I don't want to do it because I know I don't have to yeah. and so there's a, a balance there and for me it's just like I don't need to do this you know I don't need to try and struggle for this and then also to the family issues came up and it was like this is where I need to be you know yeah. whether you believe in a calling or not I mean there's definitely opportunities the universe opens and we are asked to move into them and but you still are looking at moving to another major urban center as well right right it, it's I mean, going to be Dallas. It's, it, it, it's a downshift. I yeah. would not call Dallas a major urban center, by the way. That's well, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, what's yeah, interesting yeah. about it is it is a, a center of a lot in Texas, and yeah. so it, it is, in a sense, the cultural capital, you know, oh, to... just words. <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting about Dallas is... Miracle this. Jones is a Texan. And where? Oh, Houston, Houston. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to live in Houston, and she had a real problem with, like, running her air conditioning 11 months out of the year. <laughs> That's but fair. it is. I, yeah. I do like Houston. Houston is a great city. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about a Dallas, real city, some might say. <laughs> what the interesting is about Dallas, I think, is just that that legacy of obviously the oil and gas industry yeah. and kind of being a center of that finance and the right. old money there. Um, and now, because what I represent, right, it's the new economy, right, the digital economy, the you know data, technology, all those kinds of things. So it's it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens. I think you're going to find yourself in Austin and San Antonio a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's possible. Yeah, that's possible. San Antonio is the fastest growing city in the country, I think. And they have SeaWorld. Yeah, and they have SeaWorld. <laughs> and, and Six Flags. And, and Six Flags. Like... And the Alamo. And the Ripley's, believe it or not, across from the Alamo. It's I'm going to be honest, the Alamo is a little disappointing. It's I mean, really disappointing. You go yeah. there and it's like, well, this was it. <laughs> Why did they die here? Yeah. I don't even want to visit the gift shop. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so what's your story? Where you, where, where you, where you from? Where you been? Like, what's, uh, what's, where you going? Like, okay, thumbnail sketch. Yeah, we got right into, we got right into it, but let's like give some context. <laughs> give some context. Yeah. yeah. All right. So thumbnail sketch, and we kind of dig in from there, I guess. Um, so, uh, born and raised in Las Vegas. Right. Um, left Vegas intentionally, came out to the East Coast. I uh, went to school in upstate New York, started in theater, shifted into sociology, uh, spent a year in the AmeriCorps of Broken Alcohol Rehab Counselor. Uh, did some time, worked with the American Red Cross, and then went into the Army. So I was a Chinese linguist, um, uh, and then I was assigned to a Special Forces unit. I did two deployments to Iraq, had a good time there, you know. Well, you spoke time. a lot of Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> they, you, spent, you spent a lot of time training a very difficult language to use it. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Uh, yeah, you don't wonder how much of your tax dollars went into that. I <laughs> but I do appreciate it, because Monterey is a great place to live for 18 months while I'm learning Chinese. Uh, St. Angelo, West Texas, not a great place. That was the contrast there. <laughs> yeah. Go, you know, go from like Monterey, Coast yeah. California, great time to like geometric middle of nowhere, West Texas. Yeah. Um, so they did that, and then um, did my two tours. Came out, uh, was a contractor for the federal government, so I was living in the Maryland kind of area. Uh, did that for three years, and then moved up to New York. It's interesting when you work, and this is before our current administration. Um, but looking around at like the contractors and then the government people, none of them were happy. No one was like, I mean, there's a few kind of like they really got into the job, whatever, but it, no one was happy. Everyone was just counting down to retirement. I'm yeah. like, wow, this is, 
not where I want to be. Uh, so go to school. I want, want to get into tech and data more and um, move to New York. Did that. Got started my own company and have been successful enough as a s- small business owner uh, to make a go of it and survive. And um, I focus on uh, the public sector. So I do a lot of work uh, with like open data, open source technology, um, analytics. And really what it comes down to is helping people think, learn how to think, and think about problems in the public space. And how do I apply data to these problems? We should be listening to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're saying. Yeah. So yeah. Did you learn any Arabic or did yeah. Or, yeah so you so, were straight up language? Yeah. Uh, well, no. So um, I did, with the two tours to Iraq, uh, on the, especially the second tour, we did a little language training around Arabic. Um, which is, I thought Chinese was a godforsaken language. Arabic is a really... So, interesting thing about Arabic versus Chinese. You would not describe it as godforsaken. <laughs> <laughs> no, very god-infused. Yeah. However, what I found challenging about it is... Um, so, Chinese has this long history, right? And, and so does Arabic, I mean, most languages do. But the difference being that with Chinese, you have 4,000 years of history, and there's a whole thing about, obviously, like the scholars and, and the classical Chinese and how it was really like the written language in particular was really conserved by this elite of the intellectuals, right? But what that means is that there's a lot of consistency in the language. There is structure and there is order to it. Um, and it's been preserved throughout the ages in that. So in, what that means now is that Chinese has definite patterns to it. It's like German in that sense of there is the pattern and that, you know, it fits the pattern. You can follow the pattern very well. Um, whereas Arabic, and I would argue this has to do with, you know, the invasion of Baghdad, you know, by the uh, Mongols and sacking of Baghdad, and really kind of the crushing of the empire and um, other kinds of things, make that splintering, that fracturing, so that you have so many dialects to the point where you can't speak about a, a true Arabic. There is so many dialects of it. Egyptian is the closest to what's called modern standard Arabic, but Iraqi is much more like Iranian. Um, and each of the others, I see you get out towards in North Africa, you get more of like the Spanish influences or some other kind of change of things with it too. So it, it becomes really hard to learn Arabic because there is no grammar of Arabic really. And there's some other things too. It's like this lack of conservatory learning in university or this, this conservation of language has meant it kind of gets a, it's really challenging to learn in a systematic way because there is no systematic approach to it. You just kind of have to hear it, learn it, and repeat what you've heard. And the history in the Arabic world is of conquer and then that being, of, of conquering and then being conquered and that splitting up and isolation and everything else. Um, whereas with the Chinese experience, it's been this consolidation, right, the Qin Dynasty, and then keeping things very tight and regulated and controlled over long periods of time and having a culture and a history that's much more collective and consolidated just in its its nature. So, so what does that mean when you and your next door neighbor, and you know, speaking geopolitically, maybe share the same language ish and the same religion ish, but there are these differences that can yeah. really cause conflict. You really got to police like the boundaries of it because otherwise you just kind of dissolve, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Al Jazeera is based out of uh, Qatar. Uh, so, did they have any? So, is Qatar reads Arabic. Uh, distinct from Egyptian? Or oh, no, they're not distinct. I mean, yeah. I think that's what I'm mutually told. But again, like the media, it's what's interesting, like the media helps mediate. Like we talk about in the U.S., the mid-Atlantic becomes the American standard English yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know enough to really say for sure, but but in the sense, my sense is that like the Egyptian and the Qatari, like what they use on Al Jazeera is very much that kind of standard. Standard mid-Atlantic. Yeah, mid- what we would call like the mid-Atlantic kind of accent kind of thing with yeah, it. Yeah. But yeah. So in India, um, it has, yeah, Twenty-two official regional languages, and that's uh, and there's never been a real uh, there's never been a really good um, attempt to unify it because that comes with sort of a there's never been a, uh, a a power that could do so. 
Um, but I think media is actually effectively standardizing either Hindi or or English um, as the language of the of the country. Even I mean, in terms of population, it's about the size of China. Um, and so I think that's that's very interesting. I think also media is also standardizing the practice of Hinduism. <laughs> so like, which is also to, uh, the media really changes. Just like I think the radio cha- changed local dialects in America, right? Like forever. But uh, yeah, uh, so we have a bunch of questions for you uh, that we just kind of tend to ask all of our guests. Uh, um, but like, first of all, like, so the election. Right? So uh, it was a, it felt like a different kind of event, right? And like our young lives uh so did it how did how did it where what were you doing where were you like what did you think trump was gonna win um so i was actually uh sad to say i was actually doing some work i was actually working on a project um that night like going through the night and like watching the election returns yeah and i had a friend who was at the um the election night party at planned parenthood who was frantically texting me as we go through the uh, night. And I was like, hey, I'm a, a big, you know, like Nate Silver and like watching polls and things okay. like that and was looking at it and also playing with that New York Times map that where you could you could play around, like oh, if you win this state or that state and who wins and all that kind of yeah. stuff and plugging it in. Um, I, I didn't think he was going to win, but I also was not like hardcore Hillary because yeah. I could see the significant flaws. I was actually asked if I uh, was interested in being to work on her campaign um, very informally it wasn't like I was yeah. okay, we want you we need you but like pulling me in it was just like hey this is out there if you're interested let me know and I can talk to some people mm-hmm. and uh, I thought about it and I honestly was not particularly enthusiastic about her campaign I didn't think she was a good candidate I don't think she was the best candidate that went up in the primary um, and because uh, I knew she had so, so much baggage and everything so it didn't surprise me like that drag on her mm-hmm. um, but it was really sad to see the enthusiasm for Trump and what was going on and coming from a family I know my dad voted for Trump I don't know about my mom um, but coming from a context so my family have you know have been in the country for seven generations um, we helped settle the West you know Montana all that kind of stuff I was at like poster boy for like a Trump supporter or something yeah. but I just kind of a lot of resistance to it because my own experiences and everything else um, so I could understand it but then I was also really sad to see people buying into what was effect- what was provable lies even at that time mm-hmm. I mean now we've got other things that tell us that he knew he was lying about so many things but even then he's like we, we, we could tell like I don't think he's being truthful he's being honest we want to elect him to the highest office really you want to go for that mm-hmm. so it was really sad to see especially when he won and then knowing like I actually had to teach a class the next day for city employees, and we had like half the class didn't show up. The other class, I was other half of like, I want to kind of talk about that. Like, no, we want to work. <laughs> it some data. We want to like, this like obliterate this out of our mindset. Um, so, cause, I mean, most people in my classes are people of color, and yeah. most of them are women, and so this was a particularly demographic that you know was I think particularly challenged in that election to see what happened. So, um, it was. It was not what I wanted to see, and I think I would have preferred of those two alternatives definitely a Clinton presidency. But um, as much as I like, kind of criticized Sanders at the time for being a little um, seemingly just not really kind of seeing the big, but really understanding what was going on or everything. Okay, I, I I called him a West Wing character in a um, House of Cards world, mm-hmm. um, and but I think at the same time though he would have he would have been a much better option. Although honestly, uh, I think there were other candidates that would have been a lot. Lot better who's your guy who's your guy um, I actually really like Martin O'Malley because I think <laughs> you're the that, one <laughs> I know I actually <laughs> met him after uh, right before the election actually so um, and we had a, a brief conversation about things um, but 
Yeah, I think he was he, and I think this is a problem across the Democratic Party is allowing younger voices to come up and into higher levels <laughs> and get, have a chance at things and, and really kind of um, make their voices it's heard. It's funny to think of Martin O'Malley as like the young voice in this campaign, but yeah, he was but, like by twenty years. Right? Yeah, like, he was yeah. a young voice, but I think also had a record of being an executive, like you know, having you know, mayor, governor. Um, and, and have actually run things, <laughs> done things, but also in a way that, for me, he, he was uh, one of those kind of like data-driven, evidence-based kind of govern, you know, people who govern from that, um, which is something that's very near and dear to my heart. And so I want to see that become part of more of this instead of just the dogma of like, well, this is where the party line on this. It's actually, well, let's see where the data tells us, what's the evidence tell us, and what's actually going to produce the results that we want. Um, so, but yeah, so that was that's where I was at. Are there any? Uh, so I'm just curious, like what, who, who now, like grabs you? Who's out there that's like working? Who's for, clearly in the has their hat in the ring for 2020? That, uh, that is, doesn't have their hat in the ring for 2020. <laughs> I mean, is there just, anybody that you like? No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was watching Colbert and, and Eric Holder talking about maybe him running for. Yeah. You know, I don't. It's just so hard because I feel like it, we have all these pressing issues. All right, so like take for instance immigration. Yeah. What are the Democrats' policy on immigration? Get rid of ICE? There, there is no tr- coherent idea about what is an immigration policy, the Democrats' immigration policy. It's being defined, in a sense, by the Republicans. Oh, they want to release all the immigrants. They want to have open borders and all this kind of stuff. So there seems to be this lack of coherence. And so that's kind of my problem. It's like I would almost rather see someone who was more a moderate Republican who could come up with a really kind of coherent belief system that balanced things out and actually was rational than someone who was just trying to pander to one side or the other, which I think is kind of where we're at, unfortunately, in this moment. It's just so much inflamed intentions. Right. Let me push back on that a little bit, just because I think the party itself, the Democratic Party, is really sort of in the woods politically, just in terms of where you are, in terms of representation in national politics or having any power, but also in local politics, right? So if the Democrats win, let's say, return to power in 2018, right? I think it'll be a remarkable turnaround because you would have been at the absolute bottom or nadir of power. And you and and while you're in the woods, it usually takes a few cycles to really get a coherent message because there's a reason that you were actually out of power. You no longer have a message that resonates. You're no longer able to deliver uh, political victories. So it takes a while for that to really kind of sit in and, like, for the party to come uh, coalesce around co- coherent messaging. So mm. the idea that you have a party that isn't really being forced to uh, make decisions in any way and now and want a, a platform, right? Like, I think it's very much a, pop, a power, a party that's in opposition, right? I mean, and this is, this is how Republican ability to produce policy atrophied, right? Is like being the opposition party for like a little too long. And I do think there's a concern on that for Democrats. Uh, to throw in my hat as far as immigration policy, what I would really love to see Democrats just go down on is just say, we want to, I don't know, quadruple the level of legal immigration, and then we can be tough on enforcement. The problem is that, like, these people want to come to the country legally, and they can't. I feel like that appeals to American sensibilities in a way that, like, current Democratic pitches on immigration don't. Mm. Um, My problem is, though, and with this is, I actually don't think the Democrats are the party of opposition. I think the media is. I don't mm. think, and it's just like Venezuela, where it's really the media is forming the opposition and really kind of pushing back against policies, and the Democrats aren't, are kind of going along there. I don't know that they are, especially when I talk about, like, the institutional Democrats are, aren't, aren't kind of putting that out there. And then what I think is important when we talk about immigration is we talk about numbers, people coming in, all this kind of stuff, but we don't acknowledge is that 
the reason that they are coming here, it's not, yes, in part of our economy and everything else, but it's because things are so bad in their country. You talk about all the interviews that happened in the New York Times, whatever, about why are you coming here? What's going on? My country is so bad. If I go back, I will die. And these are direct results of consequences of American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And it's is you can talk about, oh, self-flagellating, liberal, whatever. The point is, is that the American policy created outcomes for these people that makes their countries miserable places to live in. Like, that they are scared that they will, and legitimately so, that they will die. And we're not taking responsibility to say, okay, well, what can we do to create truly kind of, you know, democratic places, people that, where they can live and prosper and flourish, and so they won't come into here. Same thing with the drug, and you know, the drug use across, or the flow of drugs across the border, part with immigration, right? There's a, the coyotes are bringing drugs and people. We don't take responsibility for the fact we haven't taken care of our own, and so there's this demand for drugs coming through the border, so they're going to find everything possible. But do you feel do you feel like... So I'm on board, right? But do you feel like that's a message that appeals to sort of the general American voter who... Let's put it this way, who, when you're talking about demographics, feels a little pang of discomfort when you get to the part where you talk about white people because you're naming them, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like... Um, do you feel like that's an appealing pitch? Because part of the reason why I say, look, I think, sure, like, agree that we all think enforcement could be a good thing if we had high enough legal immigration targets is because, like, at least then you're kind of reframing that question to target, I don't know, people who don't like to think bad thoughts about America for whatever reason. Well, first of all, there's that quote, right, my, my country right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And the second part of that is well, when it's wrong to make it right. Yeah. But I think the, the challenge when you're talking about, like, crafting policy and message and all those mm-hmm. kinds of things is, the people who are like all about America, America's great and really patriotic, yeah. also have this interesting tendency to blame the government mm-hmm. and really attack government as the problem and wanted yeah. to destroy that. And so there's this interesting thing where in their minds they are disconnecting the country, whatever that is, from the government and how mm-hmm. it's being run mm-hmm. and the elites and all these kinds of things. So it actually becomes really hard because it, it you can't... You can't speak logic to feeling, mm-hmm. and so much of this is feeling, and it's irrational feeling, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a lack of context and history and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be pedantic. Oh, you got to educate the voter because what you really have to do though is get to the real heart of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are in pain. Mm-hmm. White America feels it is in pain. Middle class, mm-hmm. working class America feels mm-hmm. it's in pain. Mm-hmm. You have to speak to that pain mm-hmm. in a way that lets them know they're being heard. Yeah. You, we, the policies that we have we've done have hurt you. Mm-hmm. And we have, in return, we've given you Walmarts. And that's, yeah. you know, we took away your good, like, union jobs and gave you Walmart. <coughs> and Cracker Barrels. And Cracker Just Barrels. Although, um, but you, you have to be able to speak to that and get through it. And yeah. that's where I think the politics of our time that's very transactional and very much at the surface level, what can I just, how can I move the pieces to get the right arrangement that I want? Yeah. Um, it doesn't really speak to what needs to be done, which is a much deeper understanding of, like, the moment that we're in and how do we mm-hmm. diffuse this. Yeah. Like crisis that we're in, and you know, part of that because that is wrapped up with not just immigration, how response to it, economic mobility, all these kinds of things, the um, the drugs, all those kinds of things that are mm-hmm. happening in our society. Um, it's just so much of a mess. It is kind of a Gordian's knot. And how do you untie that and loosen that so we can have a truly open democratic society where free exchange and actually debate and commentary yeah. instead of just this rioting in the streets virtually? Yeah. yeah, I guess I guess I would push back and say. I would say society has never been more stable, safe, or secure, but we see way more of it. So we've never had more insight into the mechanics and uh, and and the ability to see in real time the problems than we do right now. As a result of the internet. how do you define that? Like how do you say that? Uh, just by st- the stats, like crimes way down all over the country. Uh, it's up like in the past like year, but 
for the, the trend line is like crime is just but suicides way down and overdoses is causes of yeah, death their way up uh, in mean, one demographic but not in all of them like uh among like white it's guy, the majority white demographic still right but it's still down over time right well, like, right but yeah. but if e- even in just one demographic that's yeah. the majority demographic right are like killing themselves and dying of overdoses in record numbers i don't think it's fair to say well but life is better because crime is down well that's just you one know? that's just one metric i, I, so I would I, I'll, I'll back miracle on this one to some degree i think i think i think he's so i think there are arguments that life is actually pretty decent like crime statistics the economy is doing well but i think there is this malaise and i i, I think you're playing down a little bit well, I, we're wouldn't talking even, about. I wouldn't even just say in america i'd say the world itself i'd say the world has never been more safe has never been more there's never been as many economic opportunities there's never been a bigger I would world s- middle class that's true that's 100 century i would agree with that i think that with that comes a fair amount I, th- I think getting that being delivered into the middle class or all of a sudden the growing middle class isn't necessarily met always with a sense of prosperity. Absolutely and not. It makes historically you suddenly have make, way more desires, right? And, and, way more, and, and, and more, more conflict. More and like yeah. You can see this in terms right. of like how the... Certain kinds of conflict. I mean, there are a lot of new things you can worry about when mm. you're not starving to death. Yeah. <laughs> There's some interesting observations that I think I read about how revolutions don't happen when things get so bad. It's when they're starting to improve. And yeah. there is that shift, and so when you start seeing the you know, changes to an, a positive thing, that's where it's like, okay, we can no, no longer tolerate this situation. Things need to change. I think, though, the the problem where I push back what you're saying about the metrics, and I'm a metrics person, mm-hmm. is the metrics don't speak to the everyday experience, and that's so. I think that's where the Democratic Party, I think, or at least Hillary Clinton's campaign, kind of came into this problem where it's like things are so great, let's just keep doing what we're doing, and people were like. This sucks for me. I've got you know friends who are dead or in rehab, or I'm not really able to find a job. I'm I'm putting together two or three part-time jobs in order to try and survive. And so while things may look good on paper for certain people, that is not the universal story. And talk about especially the rural experience or you know anything outside of the larger cities, but even in the cities, right? How affordable housing, all these kinds of things, um, it feels to some that like their lives are in decay and then the people aren't speaking to that experience. They're trying to tell them, oh, everything's wonderful. Look how Wall Street's doing or whatever. Your 401k should be great. People are like, I can't even pay my credit card bills. There's no way I have a retirement. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's fair. I think there's a strong economic argument, but I also want to say that this uh, also collided with a sort of a cultural engagement, right, as well, right? So you have, um, you can say that, you know, maybe there were things that were wrong. I think in terms of um, the economy not delivering absolute growth across all sectors. Um, you can also say that perhaps uh, there are real epidemics, especially we always talk about opioid crisis, but there are, I think that's indicative of, of larger issues. Um, but I also think that at the same time, what people started to notice was that it was a lot more in terms of uh, either cultural conflict or becoming very aware of how there are uglier parts of society that, and at least in American society, that there's a certain amount of friction on the edges. And that's important, right? So it's not just, we, I don't want us to just kind of come out and saying, okay, well, there's there's an economic argument. There's a very real cultural component. And I, you see this from the Republican Party. You see this a lot. Uh, this is really what the presidency of Donald Trump is about, is if there are legitimate economic grievances and other types of social grievances, they came out and they spun it as being able to blame the cultural changes of America as being the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's one thing to say that we have 
concerns, right? Legitimate concerns. But it's another thing to say that okay, the solution. What happened was we delivered a solution of cultural grievance on mm -hmm. I think both sides. But that's a really important narrative, right? And that's mm -hmm. that's something that we have to kind of figure out how to disentangle. I think like mm -hmm. it's the whole white OJ sy syndrome, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah you've identified with someone OJ. so much, it's it, you're never going to see anything wrong with him unless. Over time, he gives you so many excuses to like walk away. That you maybe every time he comes up, you defend him, but you do it more and more half-heartedly. So yeah. you just like hope he never comes up. Yeah. Well, I think that goes speaks to you know if you use like a family metaphor, where it's like you can have internal fights in your family, yeah. but if someone were to attack your uncle, mm -hmm. they'd be like, oh, you know, wait, I, you know, yeah. I'm gonna defend him. Although what I found interesting in the election and actually really tragic were these women who were saying like, oh, well, Trump didn't mean what he said, or he's not like that. In, there were, some of them would slip and say, oh, I know someone just like him, or he's just like my husband. But what you have is this personal trauma, like trans, being transferred into the political drama of what's mm -hmm, happening, mm -hmm. where it's like, these are, I won't speak their story, but it sounded like, these are people, who, women who have trauma around their relationship with men and their if lives. I, if I draw the line here with my politicians, right. I have to draw the line here with my loved ones, right? right? Yeah. And then, like, where do you stop drawing the line? Because we live in a very problematic culture, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. But one thing I want to go back with, with Kamala, because I, I think this is more than just the U.S., right? There is this sense of, like, the dislocations and, and what's happening and, and the resist this idea that the benefits of the economic whatever's going on right now, the benefits aren't being evenly shared. But I think it's also the story in Europe. When I mean, you talk about Brexit, and Brexit is just one of many issues in the EU about the future of the e European project, right? This idea the common market was going to bring um, a lot of benefits to everyone, and arguably it has in the numbers, but people are still resisting against it. Like the number, the fact that areas that benefited the most from trade with the continent tended to go for leave more than, than to stay. And so there is a sense that whether it was um, they didn't know, like it hadn't been explained to them the benefits of, of what this was, they're being lied to, or they didn't feel them. Like the, the, the project hadn't really delivered on, on those promises or wasn't being articulated well and understand it. Or it but it's, it's a similar thing. It didn't satisfy humanity's yeah. instinct for cruelty, right? There was nobody suffering. It, humanity's instinct for cruelty? Well, you're, you've become a Catholic recently. <laughs> I mean, this is endemic to the Catholic understanding, right? We have some, we have a darkness that if it isn't satiated, will come out one way or the other. But the soul yearns for God. I mean, that's forgotten. Do we meet him? You see what I mean? Like, so that we, we the, if, if things are getting better all around and we have this like fair and just world where all sort of laws are approaching some ideal of a democratic system, then who suffers? Uh, so who, I'll, I, I, who's I'll, hurt let me by this? A, let me, let yeah. me write about it. So I don't know <laughs> if it's a need for cruelty, but I will say that I'm willing to believe that people who see their lot either only getting better slowly or not getting better or getting worse while they perceive other people from getting better yeah. uh, as getting better, then that I think is, is, is there's a certain amount of angst, right? So right. Like it's both, again, and I think this so also... I, I also, so I would also just say that I think that's something that's kind of counterintuitive, but this is like an, an observable, whatever, you can dig into the science if you want, but is that um, these tendencies that we have toward group cohesion and toward positive feelings toward our in-group are actually, so they're pretty tightly linked with hostile and negative feelings toward outside groups. Those things ratchet up together and they ratchet down together. So. I think that, that, you know, if you look at the numbers, like the second half of the last century was like a period in which communities collapsed, right? A sense of community collapsed, groups and associations collapsed. And I, I think that to some extent we're coming out of that now. Um, and 
in the given cultural context, right, like, I, I think people are going to pick allies and enemies, and I think that you're going to see a level of hostility toward those enemies that maybe was not as prevalent in the last, whatever, 30 years. I know it's an unusual approach. I think I think people are, are really happy to yell online at each other, and it's an awesome new tool that we have, but I don't think it translates very much into real-world uh, violence or I think it's a I think it's a it's a uh, it can you know it certainly can like radicalization happens but that's on the margins and that's always been there but I don't think collective radicalization is going to be as powerful or fun when it's in competition with Netflix I feel or like when I, it's in competition with but uh, is the concern radicalization or is it the inability to come to some kind of compromise in terms of policy or I mean, meaningful we'll action? Like, that, that's my question. Yeah, we'll find out. It's the 21st century is just getting kicked off. Like, I think it's likely that we're just going to define war differently. We're going to define it down to mean uh, information war as well. And we're going to feel the same pain that we would in a real war. You know, like, uh, it's going to hurt us as badly to see information weaponized and to see cherished norms attacked. We're going to identify with these things in the same way as we would like. It's going to feel the same. It's going to feel like conflict. People are experiencing the phenomenon of fighting online with the same... It's having the same PTSD effects as like uh, co global conflict, but it isn't global conflict, right? It's just bickering online. It's just getting in each other's shit. But it, it does make it does put us all in a situation where we're bickering and fighting all the time, which is exhausting. It feels terrible, right? Uh, it feels terrible to everybody, right? Every comment anybody makes online is an opportunity to fight, and it's like it's just. But I actually think you're seeing that reaction of people disconnecting. Then I yeah, think that's more yeah. and more like the media is having that problem. How do we get more eyeballs? Yeah. How do we also because there's more and more people just drifting away from that for whatever reason, and yeah. or, or drifting into those yeah. communities, the in groups, in the communities, yeah. and everything else. With any new medium, is that you get very involved in it and it becomes very uh, compelling right and yeah. for both good and bad until you learn to get a newer or you learn to filter it right and so we just haven't gotten to a place where we know how to social filter out social media instinctively like we're on our phones or we're on Facebook or whatever and you know this is this is true I mean think about what radio did right like right. radio really energized and um, and, and really kind of captivated the hearts and minds of a generation, but it also led to like, oh, okay, this is right, this top-down media speaks for the nation, and then all sort of horrible things came out of people who are able to use that media. But it took a while for us to be like, oh, it's just the radio, It's and so it takes a generation or two yeah, to get to used to, to, to actually be able to, yeah. to put up some sort of, not defense, but being able to sort of take that in as a part of a regular information diet. Well, but I think also, to creating bonds of community within that. Like, hey, did you hear that story last night? Oh, yes, I did. We were all listening to Walter Conkright or whatever, like, yeah. together. And so that created an Americanness. Yeah. Mass I mean, that's within the history of mass media, right? It's, like, created an Americanness through the connectedness of it. And we see that splintering now. Because I think a lot of what... Um, like we're, we're talking around is this it is a shift from traditional community bound you know our, our, our groups our in groups that we're part of shifting those identities around so it's not just something that's conferred on you you were born Irish Catholic in near in the Bronx so you have your parish your people everything is formed for you and now we have to do a lot of that ourselves I think we're getting better and better about that mm -hmm. but there is still that instability and uncertainty how do we recreate bonds is it our Facebook group that we're in or Instagram followers or what's what is this that we have to do yeah and is it going to be the traditional way where 
we are joined together because we're under attack, whether we're like, we perceive ourselves as like a, a marginal group. Maybe what we need yeah. is an alien invasion. That's what, you know, because I'm a big science fiction fan, right? That's what it is. That's yeah. what's going to be, you know, whether it's an invasion or just that exploring space, right? I'm reading yeah. through the Expanse series now, right? Yeah. To say, Corey, it's right, that going to Mars, it's like kind of unifies the, unite, you know, yeah. Earth together, especially when Mars wants to break off its own colony. Oh, then now we're all Earthers and you're Mars or whatever. And, you know, then we come up with, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting to see that and how humanity can fracture, you know, with this idea We need location. a new project, right? We need something, with all this energy we've unleashed and all this, like, we need some way to direct it, otherwise you're just going to tear each other's guts up. Metaphorically, I mean, because... Or physically. Or fi- or but physically yeah. it's so much harder, right? Because, like, the, just, like, because nation states can go to nuclear war, like, no one wants to, so then you just have, like, proxy wars that are eternal and that have really diminishing returns and that don't aren't politically useful for anybody like everybody just suffers from them whether you're russia or america nobody wants to be in this quagmire and so it just i i I don't i don't know what the the answer is like maybe just curing disease that'd be awesome like really some really horrible disease and then we all care it together i mean that's why people love zombie narratives right because it's like that's kind of the they're definitely an other but we don't have to you know a true existential threat that we all yeah, have to come together yeah, fighting. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so we have, a bunch, we have a bunch of questions. For <laughs> I think you. we got through one, right? <laughs> <laughs> we got through one. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, sorry. we're gonna be yeah. here for one. <laughs> we're gonna be here for one. <laughs> so, so we have like this weird political matrix. Because we, yeah. So I mean, it's the idea is that you know left and right don't really capture a lot uh, anymore. Or they're just not effective in describing how sort of a, we think about our politics. So we tend to think about it. I don't know. We, we still haven't decided either four or six axes yeah, or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of... So we have, I think, a set of, a set of four questions, which yeah. is... Uh, yeah. uh, four to six. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, I think, is uh, globalist versus nationalist. Yes, that's, I think, the most important distinction. Right <laughs> but uh, do you consider yourself a globalist or a nationalist? And keep in mind the Pope is listening. <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, I, um, I said that I felt like I was a citizen of the world and my English teacher uh, was like, okay, so how would you explain that to like a single mother in like the ghetto or something? And I'm like, I don't really know. <laughs> um, so I definitely, this is gonna be a theme by the way in these questions. Um, there's a balance between there. So I was in the US military, I took very seriously my commitment as a citizen of the US. And I, the Starship Troopers, right, the idea that only, citizens are only those who've defended their country in some way, right? That's an interesting idea. I don't believe that. but. It is. I have stood up and defended my flag, and I, I take it very seriously. I stand when the flag, you know, the anthem um, plays, things like that. So I have an identification with it, but I also have traveled a lot, and I've done this so since when I was in high school. I went to China, um, so I've spent a lot of time overseas, um, not just in military uniform <laughs> with my weapon, um, to enough to appreciate the variety and the richness of humanity and what we have. So there is a balance between that, of being grounded in my identity as an American, and even with that, as I've grown older, more in my identity as having grown up in the West and being a product of the West, uh, but still being able to appreciate diversity and what there is in the world um, without having that, as much of that us versus them kind of thing. Although, like right in this moment right now, where we do, actually we do feel under attack because we are under attack by Russia and other countries as well. You know that the need to defend and protect what we have because it is it, it is precious, and if we don't defend it, then it can be very well taken away from us. It's like a great answer. So I guess our next question, and here's where you get it gets tough. Uh, so socialism or like planned economy versus neoliberalism, the uh, uh, more free market. Uh, um. Okay. <laughs> 
Neither. So here's a, here's a challenge. Right? So here's a challenge, right? So the invisible hand is a joke. The invisible hand doesn't work. And so what's been interesting to me in, in Europe, especially in the UK, right, they're very intentional about using the organs of government to maintain competition because competition left... And Adam Smith was very clear about this, right? Given enough time, you're going to have, you know, the um, monopoly. That's what capitalism will trend to. So this, you know, free market populism that says that we can just kind of leap people to themselves and everything will work out well, just there is no evidence that that's going to how that's going to work. We have all the evidence saying that will not work. But on the other <laughs> hand, though, too, this is the failure of planned economies because, and again, having worked with governments, right, there, there is just not the ability to look out and, and predict everything. There, there is an arrogance to say that as a bureaucrat, I, can, I know all and see all and can make things work. There needs to be an allowance for individual initiative, the dynamic qualities of, of um, the market, or, or however you want to harness kind of that potential and creativity to really flourish and come about. So it's, there is planning in order to create the environment for that and allow it to happen because it doesn't happen on its own, right? You need government to be supportive and where necessary restrictive to say that um, don't do this, don't, don't you know, put poisons in our medicine and try and sell it to us mm -hmm. um, and ensuring that there is proper competition so you don't have people just you know, running the table and be able to establish monopolies or oligopolies, whatever, to keep things dynamic. Um, so there's, there is that middle line between them. But there needs to be planning. So this idea that government always fails, that's not true. Government doesn't do everything right, doesn't mean it does everything wrong. And so you, you have to be able to look at it that way. But you also just can't trust people to be like, you know, if you read the Federalist Papers, right, he says if men were angels, would, government wouldn't be necessary, but men are not angels. Mm -hmm. And human beings aren't angels, right? So we need to acknowledge that and kind of bring those two together. So how do you feel about stuff like universal basic income, like a federal jobs guarantee? Like uh, universal healthcare. Uh, universal healthcare is really important, and I yeah. think that the on both hands that there is the compassion argument to say that we sh in this age we should not be dying from preventable diseases, yeah. and we should not be allowing particularly children to not get the medical care they need to make sure that they are healthy into adulthood. They protect, protect members of our society. There is compassionate means, but there is also the economic argument. So for me, I'm some a veteran. I have VA healthcare. I would not have started my company had I not had that. Because it's just not possible for me to pay healthcare premiums, you know. No, even with the you know, Affordable Care Act and everything else, like it was just not possible. So I would have gone into you know some kind of job and just worked for someone else. I wouldn't have been doing the kind of fun, creative kind of um, work that I've been doing if I didn't have that support. So there's a strong economic argument. I think we talk about the oh, what's the cost of you know universal healthcare? Well, what's the cost of not having it? What's the cost? And you know, we talk about administrative costs, the inefficiencies of the private healthcare system, and everything else, right? And it's just, so the economic argument gets lost, and I think it's there. Universal basic income, I think, is a little bit more challenging because I think we, we, there is an issue about, like, human nature and how we work, how we are, how we function. There is a need for a little bit of a prod and for people to engage, and how do you maintain some sense of... Uh, so the reason I started my own company was I was working for a larger a consulting company, and I could, the work that I was doing was kind of benefiting others, and others were not putting in near as much work and were still getting promoted and still everything else. So it was really hard for me to maintain initiative in that environment. I think there is a challenge with universal basic income to be compassionate while still, okay, still fostering human development. What do I mean by that? I believe that society and government in particular is here to help us reach our potential, fulfill who we are as human beings, what we can do. You're almost, you might say, a Star Trek Democrat. <laughs> Star Trek Democrat, interesting. <laughs> but uh, I grew up a Star Trek. I started with my thing. Yeah. yeah. In my heart. So. Yeah. yeah, but uh, okay, so, so here's, the, here's the last two. Mm -hmm. uh, rural versus urban. Um, so 
like I said, my family have been here for seven generations. Yeah. We, I trace family members back to the Revolutionary War, and almost all of them have been farmers. Uh, it's only been the past couple of generations that they've moved into cities-ish. Um, and I'm the first one, really, to live in a large city. The The urban areas cannot live without the rural areas. It is just not possible. Um, the The issue there, though, is that, uh, well, first of all, I don't think the... We can't just like ship all people into the cities because it's not possible. There's not jobs for them, right? So um, there's an issue then becomes about productively engaging people in, in the work. Um, but there is also, I think, on a deeper level, the ability to connect with with the earth and the production of means and everything else. When we become so separated from the production of our food and you know soil and water being able to get out of urban areas into you know the man-made environment into the natural environment, there are very important um, effects negative effects that happen to that if we're locked into this place. Um, there are also issues when we talk about like the decline of civilizations, there's this interesting idea of scale. Civilizations getting to a scale that they can't support themselves, like the, the urban centers not being able to support themselves um, without some kind of paradigm shift. So if one paradigm shift, for instance, sewage. Like how do you, putting in sewers in order to manage human waste, because in small scales it's not an issue, but when you get larger scales it becomes problems. And I think we're starting to hit some of that now. Um, we still do need the rural areas. We need it, you know, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but we also need it productively, and we, we need those centers doing what they're doing. Well, I think this is less a question of whether we want to wipe one or the other. <laughs> sure. And then, like, where you think your values come from. Yeah, like, yeah, what do yeah. you, and what, and because it's an interesting question because you get to figure out what you think the two are. Yeah. So, what I think the two are, so having, so ruralness for me means um, having space. The space to do your own thing, to be your own person, um, and create something for yourself. That plot of land is for you to, to live or die on, to, to prosper or to fail on, um, and having that opportunity to do it. Because you've been giving all the tools, everything that you need. Um, that's where you see some of like the, the Grange the Grange movement and other things about, like, give me more autonomy, allow me to do my thing, the Homestead Act, all those kinds of things. That, however, is diametrically opposed to the urban experience, which is to say because we literally live on top of each other. You cannot do whatever you want with your apartment or your space. There needs to be reasonable restrictions on you, and in return, I will accept those reasonable restrictions. And we need a neutral third party to come in and manage a lot of these more and more, um, to, in these interactions that we have, in order to make things work for us. So you feel more free in a city or out of a city? Oh, I feel more, well, more, okay. Depends on how you find freedom. Yeah. <laughs> but the, if, if you want to take that basic idea of like being able to do whatever, whatever yeah. obviously you, you go out into the, the, the rural areas and you have the ability to kind of, in certain ways, right? If I want to run naked through the woods or whatever, okay, it's a little bit easier to get away with out there than in the city. However, right, why am I in the city? It's the opportunity. I cannot do what I do in rural areas because there isn't the um, the connections, the people, the critical mass of people, the ideas, the concepts, not the data. Right? You're talking about, you know, New York City, how many, you know, like, well, 50,000 through one calls a day or something crazy like that. I know it's not that, I think it's more like a week, but still, like, that's aggregation of data where you talk about trends. You know, if you're out in a rural area, maybe you get five a month, you know, so it's like the, the data, things like this doesn't work. So. The, then the freedom to explore my potential in those areas is restricted. I can't do, there are only certain trades that I can do, right? I can, 
you know, I can plow my fields, I can raise cattle, I can do uh, raise hogs or whatever, or maybe do a service right, around erotic that. Amazon novels. Erotic, exactly, out in the, out in the woods where yeah. I'm running around naked. Where you so, free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> in the city, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So the all our erotic is trans. We only do trans erotic. Goddamn right. So the so the freedom to develop myself is more in the city, but at the same time, though, the freedom to be a human being, that expansiveness, that openness. I whenever I left the city. And so now I feel myself physically expand out because I'm not being compressed in by the by the urban environment. So that kind of brings us to the last question, which is uh, law and order versus personal freedom. Mm-hmm. Which one do you, uh, is more appealing or attractive to you? Um, so we need order, right? We right. need to have, um, we can't have a perch, right, kind of thing. <laughs> there, there needs to be... A, order and regulation of society in order to allow each individual their their ability to cultivate develop themselves as they they want to see fit um but within that having the, the responsibility so that's where like the, the classic right you can't yell fire in a, a movie crowd a movie theater right because you are then causing people problems you that's not freedom of speech then sure. at that point but within those you know the boundaries to say that you know this is going to negative to negatively impact someone else you are free to do whatever you want with that. Wear pink flip-flops and, you know, crazy hats or whatever you want to do. Pink flip-flops and crazy hats is the limit of your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But For what we can get away with <laughs> under, under Richard's regime. So here's where it gets tricky, right? Here's where right. the slippery slope happens, right? So we've been talking about uh, community and the belonging and being a part of things. <laughs> so that comes with norm setting, right? Being able to set norms for group membership, the in and the outs, and defining those kinds of things. So... There has to be some way in which you 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 can cultivate a personal freedom and a personal identity, and personal individuality, but still be in some way connected to the larger whole in a meaningful way, right? Um, that's a challenge, and that's a question. I right? can government actually manage those, and I don't know that they can. Um, you look at places like Singapore, where they're much more intentional about kind of the social engineering to make the society function. They have particular reasons for that and why they do it. Um, but they can be pretty heavy-handed sometimes in terms of regulating the environment in order to achieve that union, that cohesiveness. Um, that's not something I would expect. I think is possible in the U.S., but it does speak to that need to kind of keep things knitted together around common norms that can run up against personal freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think that also speaks to where in urban areas you can you find much more of that diversity than you do in rural areas because ultimately there are the, the norms are much more rigid. The there is this a little bit more of an edge to survival in a sense that kind of, I think, and especially the history of the American West, that has caused these kind of really rigid you know, us and them boundaries and things like that versus urban areas can be more tolerant of like, oh, you want to do your crazy thing or be whatever else. Or no, be a socialist. can be, but have to be, right? Have to like, be, right. Because of the density. of. Like my dad had a farm. We lived in Vegas yeah. and or a little plot that he was trying to plow. Mm-hmm. Now it was just to like Brooklyn Grange, things out in New York City. Like yeah. I think as well, you're going to see a little more of that, that blending of you know, the agriculture anyway into the urban areas as well as not just rural. Um, but then I think people are also bringing that kind of rural sensibility of growing, being connected to earth and land yeah. into the cities. Like we see that with parks. I hate it. You hate parks? <laughs> Trees just do ah, them all out? Yeah, the allergies, the... Nah, I'm unposed. But, I, you know, I moved to New York for a reason, which was like cyberpunk concrete and steel. <laughs> you know, like. I was actually going to say, so I, I, we, I've seen a couple of urban farms, and I think that it's interesting where you kind of grow... Uh, hydroponics in 
basically what are uh, two by four, uh, right. like, like like trailers, double wide yeah. trailers, right? And then like that's fine. Um, I actually think that fundamentally changes it because I, I see what's coming, and you're not going to have farmers. You're going to have robot harvesters. Yeah, and it's just I, I and like you and the someone's got to run the robots. There'll yeah. be robot harvester. Yeah, yeah you have farmers. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have programmer farmers. Like I just, yeah. I mean, it's it's just going to be radically different once you take away the land from the equation, right? Um, that need for a, a human intensive relationships with the growing crops, I think, is going to go away. Or it'll be like not a necessity based relationship, but an intentional one, which I think will be better for everybody, right? Like I mean, yeah, that's that's one of the things like that I am suspicious of about socialism is I don't want to work in a factory. Like, and I know that's where I'll go. Well, we've looked at your resume. Yeah. Welcome to this sewing machine factory. I, I think yeah. proven yourself incapable of working in a factory. <laughs> I, I, I hope to do that every day. I hope to show the, the, the coming yeah. overlords yeah. that I am quite bad at factory labor. <laughs> I feel like maybe some kind of intelligence organization, if we can just get you to comply. Yeah, that's a rough, rough. And I got stunk of white in my, in my blood. I'm so good at manual labor. So good at it. Um, well, it's already happening now when you talk about like news feeds and things like that. You're already yeah. being told what you should read, what you should mm-hmm. think, what you should see, yeah. and that's, who, that's your reality, like defining that reality for you. All right, so it's it's already a, a very long podcast. We haven't. No, it's talk. good. I mean, it's, it's but where's my where's my spot on the on the hyperplane? It's here? hard to work. I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm shooting for like the GBT. geometric GBT. center. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think you're actually in the geometric center, uh, but I think you try to talk your way into. Yeah, yeah, I was very impressed by your campaign speech. No, I think I think you wanted to bounce. But let's. I think you're. I think you're legitimately a person of like deep contradictions. Like you're, you know, you came to the city, but you live in the country. Like you know, you went into the military, but you know, you were a linguist. So that's like you know, kind of a strange place to be in the military, right? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting when I actually uh, so when September 11th happened, I actually had this. I taken a class from a very radical. history teacher in foreign affairs and so almost right away I was like this is payback for what you know so there was a sense of the, uh, the rationale behind the attack and actually and then when the invasion of Afghanistan happened really feeling like you know, all these Afghans are going to die and so very connected with that um, was not a supporter of George W. Bush but still chose to go into the military to be witness to what was happening mm-hmm. so it's the embracing for me it's like w- what it is it's not kind of hedging or anything like that it's an acknowledgement of the truth on both sides and trying to find compassion for the yes I believe this but I want to understand what the other people believe on the other side I think that's one thing that's missing right now and so it's then hard to be at either extreme when you're like oh but there's kind of I see their the rationale here and I think I don't agree with it like especially around immigration when they're like they're taking our jobs they are not taking our jobs like that's not a position I have a lot of I have compassion for their feeling like that's what's happening yeah. but the reality of it is just not there it's like these aren't jobs that you know, they're not getting the public benefits people think they are getting, and they're not getting the good jobs, good nope, American no jobs, whatever else. No getting the benefits they think they're getting. No, <laughs> that's it's funny. Rough. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about merit-based immigration, and my feeling is like, man, if you don't see the merit in someone who's, like, willing to, like, do hard work washing yeah. dishes and, like, in a second language. picking vegetables yeah. and, and learning a second language, like... What's merit? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, no, it's, it's interesting. Like, yeah. um, you talk to like professors in graduate schools, and they talk about how like the American native-born students are the worst because they don't want to work, they don't want to do anything, and it's like they're actually in, like having these students coming in from overseas who are really like this. They're maybe the first in their, in their family to go to school, or whatever. So they're really invested in learning. Maybe too much. Maybe they burn themselves out. Whatever. But 
that's a real challenge is like what's going on for for those people that are, are going through the motions of everything but they're not getting this you know real sense of what's it for what they want to get out of it but yeah I think you've done a very good job of presenting a series of passionate, nuanced positions without your opinions turning into gray mush. So, like, good job. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you got a real future, kid. <laughs> yeah, campaign, campaign. But so, how are you uh, with the current? You seem like someone who strives for balance and nuance, right? Mm-hmm. So, is everyday living hell for you? In the current? <laughs> <laughs> and how are you keeping sane? And no so, okay, well, this, this, it goes back to uh, having a practice around um, intentionality around these compassion and understanding is seeing that in this moment there's a lot of really bad unfortunate things happening but there are also these graces right of people standing up i don't think we would have had me too if we hadn't had the access hollywood so there is in a sense people and i think this is true on a global level people that were very comfortable with america being in the lead or in charge are now having to stand up like oh wait oh this this kind of sucks what are we gonna do about this and so there is a moment of shifting and change and people taking responsibility. You see this kind of on the local level too with local governments being like, oh, well, we can't trust the federal government to do the right thing anymore. And they could pull the plug on this, you know, or, or they may be actually diametrically opposed to our interests. So we need to find ways of doing this on our own and doing this together. So this idea of cities kind of come in and states kind of coming in league or uh, to, to affect positive policy changes, you know, in, even if directly in opposition to what's being done at the federal level. So there is this kind of interesting moment that's happening of people taking responsibility, being engaged, also disengaging, but things are changing and they are good within that. There's good things within that. Um, and then there is bad. And I also think on a personal level, uh, just knowing you, uh, I think you also key into two very specific, for lack of a better term, spiritual practices, right? So you, you, are, have a, you are certainly a, a person of faith, mm-hmm. as well as you actually do actually practice another uh, spiritual endeavor which i think is yoga and then you'd really take that seriously as well so you have two very kind of key um i don't know following or you, you follow two very kind of key kind of behaviors or or practices that really make you check out and i think that's kind of one of the things that makes you grounded or makes you at least balanced not that your life isn't hectic i know you're yeah. enough about your life that it's <laughs> well, not it, it is can be hectic but i think that that yeah. that take that forces you to and the challenge is not spiritual bypassing. It's being like, oh, this is all wonderful. Everything's going to be great. It's like, actually, like, how do you use those yeah, practices productively? But yeah, yeah I mean, spirituality. I, spirituality gets a bad name, but I, yeah. I, I, I didn't know. I don't know a better word for it. But yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Thank you. As somebody who I guess was early to the need for civic engagement in the most, you know, uh, complete way possible, do you feel like less alone now that more people are becoming engaged around the world, or do you feel? Like, that's actually a good point because you continue to engage in a, mm-hmm. in a civic in both by in the army but also you continue to work for government so yeah. how do you do you do you feel optimistic or do you feel pessimistic yeah you see you're just talking about the, the the tension between people disengaging and engaging I'm, I'm just curious do you feel like I think it still remains to be seen what happens um, I think what we're seeing is is it's just getting worse and worse I mean I, I think now with um, you talk about children being taken away from their parents at at the border and everything else like it's just how truly incompassionate can you be and I I think that's where it gets really hard I think it's where it remains to be seen especially when we come into the real and the midterms how that's going to play out Um, but no I think there is that shift I mean when we talk about finding a different way things are getting so bad people are okay how can we find the light now Um, I don't know that it's any better or worse I think it's just kind of shifting and different and I'm hopeful that it will become better as we go through um, but right now, I think it's 
we just need this cloud gone. Like we need to get back to a state where it's like our president isn't being constantly investigated, but new investigations coming up, new lies coming out, um, and just this vitriol just constantly. Like getting back to a state, remembering what it was like when we had a president who wasn't mired in this scandal all the time. You know, who actually we kind of, if you didn't disagree with him, still couldn't say that he was a bad person. <laughs> Right, it's kind of baked into Trump. Like everybody's like, "Yeah, terrible person, terrible person." I kind of like what he thinks and what he does, but uh, yeah, exactly. Person. You have to deal with that. You're just <laughs> yeah. like, you know, there's a very small percentage who think he's a good person. The others yeah. are just like, "Well, I think he's okay for right now." Yeah. My problem, honestly, is you as bad as you may have thought George W. Bush was, and I wasn't a big fan of his, or any of the other presidents you think might mm-hmm. be bad. Right? I don't think any of them believed that they embodied the state. They could see themselves separate from the government and could make decisions based on what they thought was the better, the good decision for government or for the people. Trump is is just incapable of that. For his, in his mind, he is the state. He is when we make the con- uh, the contrast with him with uh, or the comparison with dictators, right? He has that mentality. He can't see beyond his own ego, and so his ego is the U.S. So when he says something about they attacked the U.S., no, they didn't attack the U.S. They attacked you, but you can't see the difference between that. And so you're reacting out of your own ego, and that's the real problem: is governing from this state of hyper ego focus, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's it's never led to good things in history. Yeah, it's almost as if like some record of public service is a good test for the ability to hold office. Yeah, <laughs> shockingly. Yeah, shockingly. Um, uh, as a, I guess, I, as a, as a, I'm, I'm curious about your take on the the Russian situation since it's big news now. Uh, it's. Uh, what is what does that mean to you as a, as someone who's served in the country? Um, so we were attacked. Um, we were our, our our system was attacked. And what's interesting about it is we have attacked other countries this way before. So and part of it is just like touche Russia, touche. You did it. You took a firm playbook and you did it back to us. The problem though is that not acknowledging that that attack happened and trying to play it off as oh it's no big deal or whatever else. It's like this is the election system is fundamental to our society, and we allowed this attack to happen, and we are not doing anything about it to like really shore up the institutions. Talk. I mean, there are some little things around like you know ensuring the veracity of data, things like that, or information, but nothing really systematic. It's as if it didn't happen, which just means it's going to happen again. Um, I'm really interested. And I, I haven't read through, and I really want to. Like Karl Popper's Open Society and its Enemies. This idea that you have to be able to defend, even open democratic societies have to be able to defend themselves meaningfully to shore up their values and who they are. Um, so that's the real challenge for me. And this inability of the president to recognize when everyone is saying this happened, and he's like, "Well, you know, maybe other people did it or whatever else." It's like it just shows again like his inability to process facts and take in facts. Because he sees facts and opinions the same. Actually, his opinions are better than like verifiable facts. Um, and whatever's informing his opinion, we can obviously talk about whatever that is. Um, it's not facts because the facts are very clear. You, you do, having worked in the intelligence community, the fact that all of them come together and are speak, speaking with one voice and saying yes, this happened, is pretty spectacular. <laughs> it's like this does not happen. That is like rare alignment of planets and everything else for that to happen and for that to be a uniform consistent it's not a deep state conspiracy it's a no shit this happened so you know it's that's what's really frustrating about it and to see there's just no no sense of outrage and actually what are we going to do about it what do you have a what, what what would you do about it if you were a judge 
Well, I think there's the physical. I mean, like anything around this, right? Yeah. So you, if you talk about like cybersecurity in general, right? You have the physical component, right? Making sure that uh, they can't get access to things, um, but it's also the um, the people educating people, like. Hey, when you get an e suspicious email, don't click on it. You know, do all these. You know, it's like you have to. The social engineering attacks have to be countered with information and awareness and clarity, and like putting those filters in place to let people make informed decisions about what they're seeing. So you can say, "Hey, this is a Russian troll," or "This is whatever," or "We have questions about the veracity of this," or whatever else. This doesn't seem legitimate. Give me the resources to be able to make informed decisions. Um, but then you also have to harden the infrastructure and actually, you know, support and try and deter attacks. And Again, I think there is some value to having some consequences for those attacks, whether it's outright retaliation or sanctions or whatever else. Like showing this is not how we're going to do business. How this is not how this is not going to be tolerated. Do you fear further information warfare along these same lines? Oh yeah, it's already happened. Yeah, you know, you talk about penetration of um, critical infrastructure. I mean, that's gold standard. Where you can flip a switch and shut down your adversaries. Or even just do some little like hiccups and things like that. The question then becomes, how many of these things actually attacks have happened, but they've been passed off as something else? Oh, it was just a data center failure. Oh, it was whatever else when it was actually a cyber attack or something. Um, or there was a test for a cyber attack or those kinds of things. Do you think that Russia or China is the greater threat? Um, it's an interesting question. So I think that they're both threatening in their own way. I think with Russia, it's more... Um, trying to regain power or some sense of themselves like there is that crisis in the russian i think psyche of they were once very strong and dominant and they are less so now and like trying to reclaim that um and china has some of these more existential threats i mean you have a growing population how do you provide for them they want to be able to expand into a, a regional and a global power and there is a sense that they they deserve that they you know um Zhongguo, the chinese for china actually means middle kingdom which in the and like their cosmology is in the center of the earth. And so there's a sense in the Chinese kind of psyche of being dislocated from that colonial period and everything else since. Um, so, <laughs> like, really got yeah, existential, sorry. Yeah, I, I think with China, I still see China as the bigger threat in the, in the medium or longer term. Uh, I think they're growing, they will continue to uh, be aggressive, and I think they have a very well-established um, military in the sense of, uh, they are able to to meet their needs, which is control of immediate territory as well as uh, significant cyber capabilities. Significant cyber, but they can't project force. Russia can project force. China can't project force out of the area. I also think, just in terms of cyber capabilities, it's like it's almost too limiting to think about it in terms of specific, like right, nation state actors, mm -hmm. because it doesn't take a lot of resource to build a strong cyber team, right? Like it doesn't take a lot of resource to find some people who want to learn a lot about information security and just go to it, right? Like all you need is like a disregard for international norms and law. Um, it's it's purely knowledge based. Yeah, the problem with Russia is they've created an umbrella for a group of people who want to disregard that, and they protect them and then yeah, weaponize yeah. them, right? And so if you're a criminal, like that's the place to go, and then I, all you have to do. Is I think that's leading practice now. Like, yeah. I, I, or if it's not, it will be. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a joke about how so you get a job, and the Russian like doing that kind of work, and you get caught. Yeah. Like, he's a criminal, and then like, hey, come work for us. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like I think I think I think the bigger worry is one of these countries, us, Russia, China. Europe developing an AI that does all this faster, more efficiently, and right. I mean, no, you know, <laughs> no, that, no. I think that uh, fears of 
dangerous AI often say more about the person with the fear than the AI. <laughs> well, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> but I mean, the, 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 not necessarily the... Uh, the barrier to entry is so low right now on information warfare that we do not need to worry about how well, artificial intelligence is right, going to enhance the, it. Here's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, except, well, except that the problem, yeah, you can do an attack, but to do an attack well, I mean, even the Russians who are very highly trained still left enough fingerprints to be able to identify Yeah, yeah, them. no, I'm not and saying... And the Chinese are actually really bad about, like... Yeah, I'm not saying that forensically these things are untraceable, yeah. but at the same time, they're traceable after the fact, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, they're very difficult to prevent. They're not necessarily that difficult, in some cases, to identify after they've occurred, but at that point, depending on the details, you're in a cat's out of the bag situation. Well, right, but also like something like Stuxnet, which is kind of like a, uh, it operates on its own, right? It's meant to just like, get in there, and it does, you don't need somebody pulling the button on it, right? Then it gets out there. It's out there, and the you know it's abstracted from the the centrifuge. So you're you're concerned about a Terminator scenario. I'm not concerned about a Terminator scenario. I'm concerned about I'm concerned about the tools that nation states develop in order to make their lives easier to you know to make these to systematize these things. I understand what you're being saying. Being out there in the corporate world, being but out there among yes. like. So I guess my counter argument to that would be the vulnerabilities that are available in our information systems are either very localized to the specific nature of the technology that's being used, yeah. or they're localized to the vulnerabilities of human beings as information systems, right? It's like, you know, people people want to click on a link that looks relevant, you know? Um, they want to, and if they think that, that they're going to get in trouble, they want to enter their password. If they think that their CEO is going to get them in trouble, they want to wire the money as fast as possible, right? Um, and so unless you are talking about AI that targets human psychological vulnerabilities, which essentially is Facebook, right? Or, then, or, or critical, <laughs> or, or critical then we've already got or what you're talking about. is what I mean. Because like, you know, we're creating, like, news can be secured, whereas, mm-hmm. like, these things that are meant to penetrate and spread and, like, mm-hmm. operate independently without a trace, mm-hmm. they can propagate without any, you know... I understand your It's concern. like a weather phenomenon we're making mm-hmm. in our, like the internet of things, mm. which is like, I think that could theoretically be a problem. I don't think, I think there's a, a leap between what well, you're talking about, like Suxnet and AI. Suxnet was just like a virus. It had a dynamic quality sure. to it. It's able to infiltrate. Yeah. Whereas like an AI that's like consciously, intentionally trying to penetrate. I think there's, a, what I hear well, you saying the more yeah. is this like this idea, right? So nuclear weapons are a threat, existential yeah. threat to us, but there is a system of control because there's transparency and all stuff around yeah. it. Whereas these cyber tools, even the most well-meaning hands are cloud you don't know who's doing what or why or how and there's no control over it so that's where because like nuclear weapons without anyone knowing what's happening and so that's where it becomes really challenging i feel like software's behavior is deterministic enough that i worry more about the guy in hawaii operating the emergency alert system selecting the wrong button than i do about software doing something we didn't intend it to do now i worry about people's intentions with software right but I don't have an amorphous fear of a distributed system. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think it's hard enough to distribute a distributed system. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to get that. I think what we're hearing is a lot of fear around, like, we have best intentions going into this, but we can't control the outcomes for it. Yeah. And how things can get muddled in there, or the inability really to think through all the consequences of, of what we do. Right. Um, and then seeing all the effects of it. And it's just, unfortunately, not possible. Yeah. But I think we're also, we, 
we're, when we talk about the Internet of Things in general, it's like, hey, let's connect our refrigerators to the Internet and let's do all these kinds of things. It's like mm-hmm. and no one thinking about, well, are we, should, we, should we do that? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we make these few benefits, but what are going to be the costs? And no one wants to do the cost engineering really to be like, oh, well, this, 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 this happened. You could create a huge botnet of like Samsung refrigerators that's mm-hmm. going to attack our like, well, power grid. I actually really appreciate what's happened in the past couple of years because we've gotten way more cynical about these technologies and way more skeptical. So I'm like, wait, I want a wired refrigerator? As opposed well, to like, I feel like a small subset of people have gotten way more skeptical. <laughs> I actually refuse to have devices in my home that I talk yeah, yeah, yeah. to. I don't like Internet of Things devices, right? But I think that the reason that you hear more skepticism is because you also see more adoption. So the small number yeah. of people who are skeptical are just responding That's to right. the right. overwhelming That's volume true. of That's people who yeah. are really into a internet connected refrigerator or now more and more is that that's what's available i mean you look at and so much of it is internet connected and now it's like looking for um you know like the baby camera market right so there's so much that is oh it's cloud-based well, you know, okay, I'll just get that. It makes sense. I can get it on my phone. But no yeah. one's thinking about the security. They're just trusting yeah. that they did yeah. it right. Who has access to watch my baby all yeah. the time now? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. All right, all right. Wait, that's, this is, that's it. It's hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any intentions to run for office someday? Maybe someday. Ah, great. I have a few little, few little <laughs> things i got to work out first. I so I think it would have been easy in Nevada. I think if you're going to Texas, is hard. You have to be a native. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to run for office in Texas. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, well, you heard it first. I'm Richard Dunks. <laughs> we don't know the year. We don't know the place. We don't know the office. But folks, oh, thank you so much for having me. I really oh, appreciate no, no, no. it. Thank you, Richard, for joining us. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess this is it for our Room Requirement episode 49. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, thanks to Kevin Carter for producing our outro music. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks, Kevin Carter.